As I said, Adam, whoa, Adam is going to be here to preach the word, uh, but uh, we felt it was important just to share a couple of things, to encourage the body of Christ, to encourage the church, uh, to encourage the family of God uh, in these days of chaos and, uh, and violence and, and division, great division. I want us to be encouraged, and I'm going to do that by just giving you some general information. We're not here for a historical lesson. We're here for a scholarly information time. But I think it's important that we understand what has just transpired uh, in the court ruling on Roe versus Wade. The first thing that, uh, there's five things that I would like to point to the body of Christ that we must do. Number one, we are to be informed. We are to be informed. That's critical that we know exactly what the facts are. That is our best position, our only position to hold. And so I, I have a handout, uh, and I'll make it available to anybody. There are six bullet points, we'll call them on here, that explain exactly what the process was in the original uh, ruling of the Supreme Court 50 years ago, and then subsequent rulings uh, through the, uh, uh, the Planned Parenthood Casey Dobbs case, uh, which is 1992, uh, and both of those were overturned in this decision. But folks, please understand, it did not end or make abortions illegal everywhere at all times. I wish it did. What happened is the Supreme Court finally did their job. How many are familiar with American history and why our forefathers seen fit to divide the government in three divisions, in, in three classifications? Do we remember them? George, what are they? Do you remember? Division of powers, executive, legislative, and judicial. The legislature is to draft laws. The executive branch signs those drafts into law. The judicial branch interprets those laws in light of the Constitution. Division of powers. The Supreme Court finally did their job. Here's what happened. They ruled that under the U.S. Constitution, there is no provision for abortion. There's no provision for abortion. And basically kicks it back to the states. Does that make sense? So the work is not done. The work is not done. But the Supreme Court did its job. They overruled an unlawful law. <laughs> And now it goes back to the states. So be informed. And on this, I don't have time to go into all of this. But uh, so number one is be informed. Know the truth. Know what's going on. Number two, stay peaceful and kind. Please stay peaceful and kind. Number three, know what God has said about it. Study the word. Know what God has said, the author and creator of life. He ought to know pretty much everything about what life is. 
and when it begins and how it continues. So study the word of God. Number four, know when to walk away. Know when to walk away. This is not about an argument. It's, it's not. This is not a judicial issue. This is not a political issue anymore. It's a moral issue. It's a moral issue. Always has been. So know when to walk away in kindness, in kindness, and pray for those who hate you. Pray for them. Guys, more battles are won with prayer than an argument, I'll guarantee you. I'll guarantee you. Now, as you well know, Grace Community Church is a pro-life church, and I want to read that right from our covenant very quickly. So if you're here... Uh, as a member of the church or interested in joining the church, this you need to know. We believe the humans are created in the image of God. We believe that the life of each human being, from one's conception, foreknown by God, from before the foundation of the world to one's death, occurring at a time appointed by God, is sacred and precious in the eyes of God. We believe that God hates hands that shed innocent blood and that we as Christians must stand up against the murder of the unborn anywhere such atrocities occur. We believe that the life of the unborn child should be loved, respected, and protected by the local church, believing that scripture clearly speaks of the sanctity of human life. This church, by vote, has declared itself to be a pro-life congregation. But folks, again... I don't care what the laws are. I don't care how many laws are changed, how many laws are written uh, by a secular government. The only way to change the direction of this country and to change anything in the moral realm is not through legislation, but through transformation. It only happens when people are turned towards Christ and renewed regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. The battle is won through changed hearts. Through changed hearts. So I want the church to rise above the chaos, above the accusations, uh, above the anger, above the violence. And I want the church to bear witness to the saving grace of Jesus Christ through the love and mercy of the gospel message. We will always defend the unborn. I will always defend the unborn. I am adamantly opposed to abortion. Also in this handout that you can receive, if you so desire, not only the six points of the legal proceedings, but also nine points on the development of a baby in the womb. Nine key points. Be informed. Know these things. And then above all, pray. Pray. Because the war is not over. One battle has been won. We have the vote yes for value them both coming up in the state of Kansas. Again, again, addresses a constitutional issue. We need to vote to affirm the Constitution of the state of Kansas does not specifically allow for abortion. Okay? 
And please understand, this is not the end of women's health issues. We, there's just there's so many lies out there. Guys, you've got to be informed. This is not end all health care for women. It simply says the federal government, according to the Constitution, does not explicitly permit or endorse or allow abortions. Praise God for that decision. Let's pray. Before we do that, one more thing, please. I also want to remind the church, all of us, how important it is that we remain compassionate and caring towards those who may have already chosen to have an abortion. Guys, we ought to be the sanctuary they can come to and know that they're welcomed and know that we love them and know that Christ has the power to restore them and heal their wounds and their brokenness. So sometimes we rage against the problem and we forget to minister to the victims. Okay? Father, thank you for what you have done. Thank you. We do thank you for the decision that was passed down on Friday from the U.S. Supreme Court. But Father, we, we go beyond the law of the land, and I don't mean we're above the law, but we have a, a ultimate high authority that we must be accountable to, and that's you. And Father, we always want to be found standing on your side. <laughs> We want to be found standing on your side, and we believe with all of our hearts that you're on the side of life. The author, the giver, the creator, and the sustainer of life. Please encourage your people, and please, please give us a desire to witness to a dark and very confused world. In Jesus' name, all of God's people agreed with amen. Pastor Adam, we took a little of your time, brother. Come up and without apology, preach the word. Hello? 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 Can you hear me? Hello. There we go. Well, this morning we are continuing our sermon series out of the book of Philippians. It's a letter founded on the joy of the Lord, saturated with it. it throughout the pages, the word rejoice and joy just come up all the time. It's one of the major themes that, that ties the book together. But for us today, our sermon text, it begins with a grammatical stop sign, the word Therefore. Because whenever you see the word therefore in scripture, and specifically in the letters and epistles of the New Testament, it's a stop sign to you and me, the readers, to pause and understand what's been communicated so far by the author. For it signals to the reader to look behind you in the rearview mirror of what you've just read and to understand what the author has been trying to say. Because the therefore, that stop sign, means that the author is coming to a conclusion and he's taking a fork in the road. He's taking us to new ideas. He's making a conclusion and leading us down a new path. 
And so far in our letter, at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul began this chapter with the command and the encouragement to the church, to the body of Christ, to Christians, to be in unity, to be of one heart, be of one mind, be of one accord, that type of language. And he says this is accomplished when Christians, followers of Christ, fellow disciples, when each and every single one of us follows and lives in the power and pattern of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which he tells us then, our Christ, the Lord of glory, it says he gave up his rights to heaven, gave up his privilege as the creator of the universe, humbled himself and took on the form of a slave, it says, and became a servant to all. Let that sink in, church. The one that made mankind and the one that was to redeem was going to redeem sinful man in the Gospel of John is that same Christ who washed the feet of man. That is the example of a servant that we are to take, loving one another, serving one another, putting other people first in our lives. He says that's where joy is found in unity and power in the church, when we take on the example of Jesus Christ. This is where our therefore begins this morning. So a little bit of pre-reading, a little introduction. Paul says, therefore, in light of the unity of Christ and following his example, he says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not as only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Which is just another way of saying do or live out the Christian life. Do your salvation. He says to do this with fear and trembling. And that's what we call reverence, the fear of God. Reverence is to recognize that God is who he says he is. And we're to have a proper perspective on life that God is God and you are not and I am not. That's what the fear of the Lord means. That's, that's fear and trembling. That's reverence. It's respecting God as he is the Lord. And you and I are finite creatures. Just off the top of my head, it makes me remember that scripture where it says, man is like grasshoppers before the living God. If we could only but for one moment fully get clarity on how tiny we really are, and the entire universe, and yet this creator says, I love you, and I'll redeem you, and you are special to me, as Elvin told the children. That's reverence. It's recognizing God as God and obeying him. So right away, Paul tells the Philippians, and in turn, you and us today, he says that we, the chosen people of God, are to walk out our Christian lives, do the Christian life in reverence, fearing God. And this leads us to this morning's preaching question. Since the book of Philippians has the unifying theme of joy, the book's all about the joy of God and rejoicing, we're going to ask this question this morning and answer it. Our preaching question this morning is, what joyful fruit comes from a reverent life? What joyful fruit comes from a reverent, God-fearing life, God-obeying life? We're basically asking the scriptures, we're asking the Apostle Paul in his letter, we're going to ask him now to explain to us why it's necessary that we live reverently. Why do we have to do this? Why do we have to fear God? Why are you telling us this, Paul? And we're going to answer this question with three points, and then we're going to kind of boil them down and synthesize them into a concise main point to walk away with. So we're going to begin answering our preaching question. We're going to begin by reading our sermon text together this morning. If you can and are willing, please stand and hear the words of the one true God. We're reading out of Philippians 2. 12 through 18. The words will be on the screen. Feel free to read along. Listen well. The words of the living God says this. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out or do the Christian life, your salvation, with fear and trembling. 
reverence. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all, with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. Your word has been read. I pray that you would give us insight. Do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Open our hearts and our minds. Give us, write this truth on our heart, Lord. Work in us, change us, shape us. You tell us that you use the word of God to mold us to be like Christ. So do that this morning because we can't love you in our own strength. We can't love you in our own power. We can't act and walk and be like Jesus by just being really good. It's got to be by your spirit. So Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear, a desire to obey. Do what only you can do and do this for the glory of of Jesus Christ our Lord, and the people of God said, thank you, may be seated. So the first reason we are to live reverently is because it produces the joy of recognizing God's graceful sovereignty. The first reason we are to live reverently, fearing God, in obedience, that type of stuff, living the Christian life in fear, the God word fear is to recognize God's graceful sovereignty. Verse 13 says, the reason why is because it's for God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is Paul simply restating what he said already in chapter 1, that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. This is just the constant reminder throughout the book that the reality of our great and good God really is the one in control of our lives, our destiny, our salvation. For it says God works on our will. He shapes our will, our desire to obey. And then he actually gives us the actual power to do it, our works, how we actually do life. God is the one that works in us. You, you can't do the Christian life just in your own strength. You need God to work in your heart, in your mind, to shape your will to be wanting his will, for your works to be his works. That's what he's talking about. And so all this work that God does in the heart and life of a Christian is that so individually and collectively, all of us, we fulfill God's good pleasure, his plans, his decrees. Think about it. God has a good plan, a good pleasure, and he's using you and I to fulfill that. So friends, really, really let this sink in, friends. You, you mortal, you solely exist to bring joy to your creator by fulfilling his good pleasure, period. You and I solely exist to bring God's, to bring pleasure to our creator. If anyone asks you what the purpose and meaning of life is, it's to bring God joy. It's to fulfill God's plans and purposes. It's to bring him glory and honor, that type of stuff. That's what Paul is telling us here. And God, as we just read, does not leave that in our hands to do. If he's got a good pleasure and a good will and a good plan to be carried out, 
As we just read, he's not going to leave that in our hands. It says he works in us. He shapes our will. He shapes our works to conform, to bring a good pleasure in, his, in God's mind, in God's creation. And this teaching is found throughout the entire Bible. God's sovereignty, God's power to bring about his good will. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10 says, God speaking says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to your mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. Acts 4, 27 through 28. This is after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The disciples, they're gathering together to pray. Hear what they say about God fulfilling his good pleasure, his will, his plan, that type of stuff. They're praying this. They say, for truly, in this city, Jerusalem, where they're gathering for prayer, they say, truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. This is the kicker. He says, they were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Jesus was a part of God's good pleasure being carried out, God's will being carried out. Ephesians 1, 11 through 12 says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined or like pre-chosen, whatever kind of language like that, according to the purposes of him, God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And last and most famous, Romans eight twenty eight, the golden chain of salvation, says that, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes, his good plans, his good pleasure, his good will, that type of stuff. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Friends, church, fellow Christians, the reverent life, the God-fearing life, recognizes God is in control of all things, He has a will he's carrying out, and it's for his good pleasure. It's good plans. He's carrying out his will. And so to the Christian, even when you and I don't understand the circumstances of our lives and where we're at in history, and we can't understand the joys and the pains of life that could be very real, when we don't understand everything going on around us, we can hold steadfast to this truth. Our Heavenly Father loves us, and he saved us through the death and resurrection of his Son. And he's leading us on this pilgrim's life as we march onward toward that heavenly city, what the Bible calls this new Jerusalem, the new heavens and new earth, whose foundations, as the scripture says, will never crumble and its walls will stand for eternity. And that this is the city that's been designed and it's been built by God Almighty himself for his people. And God himself will dwell with us forever. God's good pleasure at the culmination of history is that he will dwell with his people forever where sin and death and all this evil stuff will be no more. That's God's good pleasure. That's the end. We know the end of the story. The reverent life recognizes God's sovereignty and the course of human affairs. It does. 
And our small speck of history will go by in the textbooks as the Gettysburg got read this morning, which was not planned to my knowledge, but it's a great example. How well they can be discerning and look at the times and say, you know what, they won't remember anything we say this morning, but things carry on and God has a plan and it's being carried out. It's true. And we know the end of the story. It's all according to God's good pleasure and plan for his own glory. And God is using you for those purposes. This is our Christian hope and our Christian joy. And not only do we have this joy that God is in control and we are being used to fulfill his good pleasure and his good plans, the reverent life also recognizes the joy of actually living as a child of God. The joy of actually living as his chosen children and his people. It's our second preaching point. The reverent life produces the joy of actually living as God's children. Verse 14 through 16 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So Paul begins this new section with a command. He says, do all things without grumbling, without disputing, without complaining and criticizing and bellyaching. And he says this because the way you and I walk out our Christian lives as God's children really does make an impact on our Christian witness, what we call evangelism, how we shine as lights in this dark world. And this is just restating the words of Jesus. Paul is not telling us anything new that Jesus Christ himself has not told us in the gospel. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus is with the disciples, and he tells them, he goes, As I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, you're my people, you're my followers, if you have love for one another. Our world uses that term love all the time, and they don't know what it means. But we know love because Jesus shows it to us, and he says, I've shown you love do this to one another, and then those outside who are not my people will see that and they'll recognize that I'm real and you're my people and all that type of stuff. Therefore, when God's children, when the church, when we're fighting and we're grumbling and we're dividing over stuff, which, by the way, the New Testament tells us is evil. When the church fights and divides from petty things to big things, it's a bad thing. And it's a real reality and threat to every church that ever has been and ever will be. You and I can fight over the dumbest and stupidest things. I bet if we ask people, they can tell us true stories of people having church splits over drapes and chairs and stupid things that have no eternal significance. It's a great evil. But the devil loves that because it keeps us from holding back the witness of the resurrection of Jesus. It hinders others outside the church from seeing Jesus for who he is and the work that he does in our hearts. Essentially, when we are divided and fighting over things, think about it. We become like a blacked out window in the wall of the church so that anybody who was passing by who wanted to peek in, they can't see into the sanctuary of Jesus Christ. We become like a locked door. It prevents people from seeing the resurrected power of Christ. We're told regularly that Christ works on our heart. He changes us. He builds us up. He makes us like himself. And when we're fighting and grumbling, what does that really show us? And I think of this on a personal level. Have you ever been to work and you met that guy or that girl that's like always negative and they're like caustic and you just hate being around them? They're like a black hole of joy. Everything is awful. Every day is a bad day, like that type of stuff. 
and they're moaning and griping and criticizing everyone and everything and only they have the answers and everybody else is wrong. Or maybe it's your grumpy neighbor. You guys got grumpy neighbors? And as they're going to the trash and you say, how's, how's the day going? It's awful. I don't doubt you've met those people. They're always mean, bitter. And who wants to, even in a normal sense, nobody wants to be around that. They're the one that people avoid like the plague, right? They're the type that even though COVID is kind of like winding down, we're still going to put our mask on. Like, I can't talk to you right now. I got to go. You know, <laughs> we'll use the COVID escape to get away from them. They have an air, a spirit of meanness, and conflict, griping and division, disputing, Paul just said. And let me ask you this. How much worse is it when that person claims to be a Christian? How awful is that? It does damage to the witness of the power of the resurrected life of Jesus, which we're told the resurrection power lives in us. It changes us. It shapes our hearts and minds to be like Christ. And when they're demonstrating that's not true, what does that really say? You just wonder, where is the joy? Where is the hope? What's, what's wrong with them? Or what about when you hear about a coworker or a friend proudly recounting their latest sexual escapade, and then they're like, oh, but I got to go to Mass on Sunday. I got to make sure I make it to my church on Sunday. Y'all know something's wrong with that. If we believe the Bible, we know something's wrong with that. There's something wrong with their soul and their Christian witness because such a witness is no witness at all because you're not walking as innocent children of God as the scripture just told us, but you're living like a non-Christian. You're living like a child of the devil. How you actually portray your Christian life matters. And I'm not saying try to be moral and good and all that, but I'm saying the scripture makes it clear what's in the heart will come out. What's coming out of you? What do people see? It's a biblical truth. And friends, the word of God is clear. It is supposed to be a joy. The Christian life is supposed to be joyful. I'm not saying you're going to be happy all the time, but I mean, there's this inner joy that we have that we can't explain. It's the kind of joy that can say, you know what? I know you're going to kill me for, for, you know, for my Christian witness, but I can die with a smile knowing I serve Jesus till the end. And that's the extreme. And he says this is important because we live in a crooked and perverse generation. If that was true in the Roman world, it's still true today. It's always been true. God's people shine as lights in the darkness. That's our job. We're ambassadors for Christ. It's the Great Commission. It's evangelism. All that stuff. It's basically just synonyms. What's in you will shine. The Beatitudes tell us that. Remember Jesus says you're like a city sitting on a hill. You're like the lamp lit that no one puts under a bed and all that. He goes... What's in you will shine out, so glorify your heavenly Father. That's our job as Christians, obeying God, walking with him, keeping his commands. And this is supposed to be joyful. Is the Christian life joyful for you? Or are you still stuck where you think God is harsh and mean, doesn't care about you, doesn't love you, that type of stuff? Because if so, I think you're missing out on who this Jesus really is. You're missing out on the beauty of Jesus Christ if you really think this Christian life is painful and a drudging life. You're missing it. And we're not saying that life isn't hard. But the Christian life is unique. We have the Spirit of God. We're different and peculiar and weirdos in this world. 
because something changes in us when we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You're changed. You're born again. As the song said, God takes those broken pieces and he makes them complete and new. The old things are passed away. The new has come and God's making you to be like his son. So what's ever on the inside that's coming out, if it's detracting from the Christian witness, you need to ask yourself, am I really in the faith? Do I shine as a light in this world? Am I really experiencing real salvation? Am I really experiencing a life filled with the Holy Spirit? Am I really experiencing a life filled with worship and praise? Am I really experiencing a life of deliverance from evil? Am I really experiencing a life full of provision and power and protection beyond anything this earth can offer? Am I really experiencing the peace that surpasses all understanding, knowing that my sins are forgiven and I'm loved and wanted and desired by this Jesus? Is that you? Do you, do you believe that? Have you, do you experience that in your life? And do you, and last not to berate, but again, this Christian life, my friends, everything you ever want, everything you ever thought you needed or hoped for is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. And that's why he changes the heart. He reprioritizes it. What you thought was once important to you. Anybody who's walked the walk with Jesus will tell you, I once wanted this, but something changed. And now I'm this way. I don't want those things anymore. Your priorities change. You're no longer living to make money. You're no longer living to be popular and all that stuff. You live to fulfill God's good pleasure. And it's a joy. Truthfully, it's a joy. Therefore, let us live reverently as his children, not grumbling and disputing with one another, but serving one another as Christ served us. And this leads us to our last preaching point this morning. The reverent life produces the joy of sacrificial service. 16b through the end, we're inserting in the middle of Paul's thought. He says, walk as blameless children of light, uh, holding the fat word the fast of light. And he goes, do all this, he says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And this is the guy that's in prison, writing to Christians who are free. Think that through. But Paul, he concludes this section. He's reminding his readers that our faith, church, our faith has a finish line. The day of Christ will be called the second coming of Jesus. And there's a lot of scripture talking about the second coming of Christ. Romans 2, 5 through 11 is really well known. But hear what Paul says about this day. He goes, listen, live reverently because this day is coming. And the scripture says that on that day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, God will render to each man according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth of the gospel, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10, another scripture on the day of the Lord. This final day Paul is telling the Philippians is coming. He says this in a different church letter. He says, about that day, he says, 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So friends, in short, there's a lot of scripture on the day of the Lord. But the day of Christ is a day of reckoning. And when, according to the gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. You will know who you are in that day fully. And God knows who you are fully in that day. There will be no more hiding. There's no more excuses. You will be laid bare before the living God. And you will either be found in Jesus or you won't. And it's on this day when Paul's sacrificial service as an apostle to the church, he says, will be justified. So in essence, he's telling the Philippians, he's saying, live reverently today for God. Live reverently while you can and be proof in the day that my sacrifice for your faith wasn't in vain so that I can rejoice. You know, Paul, again, he's got the end in mind with his service to the church. He has that eternal perspective. And it's Paul's example of sacrificial service to the church the guy that's in prison, the guy that's going to die for this, the guy that will die for the cause of Christ, he's saying, run the race well. Live reverently. Be proof that my life wasn't a waste. That this actually mattered. And he's simply following Christ's example of being a servant. It all goes back to Christ being the chief example. Paul is just living that out to its fullness. But what's really noteworthy here, we might have to cut a little bit short, but what's really noteworthy here is that Paul describes his sacrificial service to the Philippians, most of your Bibles will say, as a drink offering. And that's Old Testament language. That's Old Testament sacrificial language. The drink offering in the Old Testament, also called a libation, was when you would, as a worshiper before Christ, when you would come to worship God, you'd bring your animal and they're going to cut it up and burn it up. They would bring essentially wine or strong drink and they would pour it out in front of the Lord. It was always accompanied with a sacrifice. No sacrifice could be given that did not have a drink offering with it, with a libation. For the law of Moses says, in the holy place, you shall pour out a drink offering, a strong drink to the Lord. And without going into great details of how our ancestors worshipped before Christ, uh, you can see how, what, the, what he means by this illustration about himself, calling himself a drink offering. He's basically saying that his apostolic service, his commission to preach and teach the gospel, the truth, and be willing to die for this gospel, his apostolic service accompanies the lives of the faith of the believers and makes them an acceptable sacrifice to God. And this really is just a beautiful picture of discipleship. Because think about this. Every individual person who follows after Christ, you, your life is essentially an offering to God. Right? That's one of the things the New Testament says. You are a fragrant offering to the Lord. You lay down the rights to your life and say, God, have your way. All right, that's what it means to be a sacrifice to the Lord. Yet God in his good pleasure provides teachers, pastors, elders, fellow disciples, deacons, those types of people in the church to accompany us on our journey of faith to serve us and to pour out our lives, which makes our lives of faith complete. Because remember, the sacrifice had to be accompanied by a drink offering. And that's the language Paul is using. So we can see what he's saying. He's like, you're the offering of faith, but I'm being poured out right with you. I am here to essentially help make you complete. 
And really, again, it's discipleship because I can't live the Christian life on my own. I cannot. And you can't either. We need those people who are willing to be poured out to help us be acceptable to God. Not that we make someone's salvation complete. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But there's a reason why people will walk alongside one another to help us grow in the faith. That's probably what I'm trying to communicate best. Paul is saying, I pour myself out as you yourself pour yourself out, and that's how we make each other complete. We need one another. The interrelationship between the sacrifice and the drink offering. So don't doubt that he's using that language on purpose to describe that what he's doing accompanies their life of faith. And we need those people who are willing to be poured out to help us be discipled, acceptable to God. You need that in your life as much as I do. Those who will be willing to pay the cost of correcting us, encouraging us, personally teaching us the Bible, maybe even rebuking us. Whatever we need, we need those people who are being willing to be poured out, to empty themselves. Every sacrifice needs a drink offering to accompany it. And this shows us that to be a disciple or elder, pastor, teacher is a service that really will cost you. As you grow in your Christian life and it becomes your turn to disciple someone else, you got to understand, church, service to one another costs. It will cost you. It probably won't cost you your life like it cost Paul, but it's going to take your time, your energy, your frustrations. Discipling other people and being involved in their life and being poured out on their behalf can be really frustrating. We know it's true, but it's what we're called to do. We are all called to some degree to be a fellow drink offering to one another to help our Christian lives become complete. But church, I tell you, the cost is worth it. The cost of being poured out in service to another Christian is worth it in this thing called discipleship. It truly is a joy to see the fruits of discipleship. John the Apostle says something similar. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, converts to the faith, Christians, are walking in the truth. And as a pastor, that's one of my heart verses. It, it brings me un, unlimited joy to see when people make the good confession, when they get baptized and they're growing and they're growing in Christ and they're, they're serving the Lord. It brings me unfathomable joy. But it also brings great pain to see when people walk away. But it's also truly a joy to see those same people then grow and be willing to do the same service to, for another, someone else. When they reach that maturity point, when they're like, you know what, I'm, God's calling me to walk with this person. And we're like, all right, it's going to cost though. Are you ready for that? And whoever is really ready to disciple and grow with another person, it always costs, but it's well worth it. And it's something, as the apostle concludes with, that we today, as the Philippians, he says, rejoice with me in this. Rejoice in this idea that we're all being poured out and being offerings to the Lord. Rejoice in this. Do you rejoice as Paul rejoiced in recognizing that his life is meant in the service of others? Do you rejoice in that? Are you serving one another? Good questions. But as we come to a conclusion this morning, we began with the question, what joyful fruit comes from a reverent life? We said it's the joy of recognizing God's sovereignty. It includes the joy of living for God as his child and the joy of sacrificial service, knowing it really will cost us. But if you had to synthesize this all together, if there's anything I want you to remember, or anything I really want you to walk away for this morning, 
boil it all down to this one thing is know this. True joy is only found in the reverent life. Anything else you heard this morning? So just remember this. True joy is only found in the reverent Christian life. Because outside of that, according to the word of God, joy is impossible. Joy is impossible. You can be happy. You can have your ups and downs. Everybody can be affected by happy. But joy is a spiritual fruit God says he grows in us. And without having Jesus Christ as your Lord, your God, your King, you will never, ever have true joy. You can be happy, but that's not what joy is in the Bible. Joy is peace with God, relationship with God, those types of things. And if you haven't called upon the Lord Jesus Christ, haven't bowed the knee to him, followed him in baptism, that type of stuff, living the Christian reverent life, if you haven't done that, you do not have true joy. And you cannot. no joy for you in your death. There's no joy for you waiting for you on the other side of death if you haven't called out to Christ. No paradise waiting, just God's righteous judgment for the evil things you've done in this life. And that's why we do what we do, why we proclaim the gospel. And so if you're hearing this message and you don't know who this Jesus is, we'd love to have that conversation with you anytime, anywhere. But let's use this time, meditate on this as we have a response time. Do you have the true Christian joy? Is your Christian life reverent? Do you recognize God's sovereignty? These types of things. Let the Holy Spirit poke you in the heart on how you need to respond this morning. And if you know somebody that's not saved, pray for them during this time as you pray for yourself. 